Welcome to Gods and Movie Makers, otherwise known as The Maids of Odeon, the show about how religion and the Bible shape the stories we tell on screen. I'm Joe Scales. And I'm Katie Turner. On this season, The Chosen One. Why were they chosen? Do they want to be chosen? And why are we so attracted to these sorts of stories? We're joined today by Dr. Laura O'Brien to talk about two films. Yes, you heard that right. Our two films this week are The Passion of Joan of Arc, 1928, and Joan of Arc, 1948. Laura is Assistant Professor in Modern European History at Northumbria University, Newcastle. She is a cultural historian of France and Europe, and her work is particularly focused on visual culture and performance, including how history is adapted and depicted via cinema and theatre. Her research interests also include the cultural history of religion in France, print culture and the history of Paris. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. I'm really pleased to come on and talk about Joan or Jeannette or Jeanne or many names that she can be called by. How should we refer to her throughout the recording, this go for consistency? I think it's easier just to call her Joan. Mm -hmm. She does tell her trial that when she was a child, she's called Jeannette or it's spelt Jeannette. But And there is a, a recent French film about her. It's actually a rock musical, which is amazing, wow. called called Jeannette, about her childhood. It's ludicrous, but it's also brilliant. It's called Jeannette. So that was her original name. So people who knew her would have called her Jeannette. But we can call her, let's just call her Joan, because that's what everyone else is calling her. Okay. I'm grateful for that because my French pronunciation is <laughs> not so good. It'll be fine. I mean, we, we'll know who we'll know who these people are. It'll be fine. Yeah. So usually at this point in our episode, we would do a film synopsis. But as we're talking about a historical figure this time, we thought it would be good to do a reality synopsis first, otherwise known as history. Okay. So, Laura, could you tell us a bit about Joan of Arc? So France, as Joan would have understood it, is not the France that we would understand it. So France is uh, partially controlled by England partially controlled by the Armagnac dynasty. Their leader is uh, Charles the Dauphin, sort of, so the person who is next in line for the throne, who has his, he was claiming that he should have the throne of the throne of France, that he should be, be bringing the Armagnac together with the Burgundians, who are on the side of the English, and that they would then get rid of English control from France and bring these groups together. So that's the world that Joan is born into. She's born in Domremy, which is in the east of France. It's in an area called, a region called Lorraine. That is a territory on modern terms. It abuts the, it abuts modern Germany. It's it's next to Germany. That territory is highly contested in the Hundred Years' War because it's kind of an intersection of territory controlled by the Armagnac, by the French and by the Burgundians. We don't know a huge amount about her other than what she told us herself in her trial. And the trial documents are really important in this respect. Her family are reasonably well off, like they're considered well off by the standards of the village. They're not rich, but they are well off. They're comfortable. It's when she's about 13 that she hears the voices or has her visions. She says voices first and then later on she says she has visions. It's interesting that this is something Joan experiences in part as a response to or could be said to be part of a response to this period of uncertainty and considerable distress within her local her local area. So that's her that's her story prior to the beginning of what she would call her mission, which begins in really begins in about 1428, but it's 1429, 1430, and then 1431 
that are the kind of key years for Joan in terms of her story. And she basically takes herself to meet the king. In 1428, she asks her uncle to bring her to a nearby town, Vaucouleur, where she speaks to the commander of the, to the town or the garrison. And she says, look, you're going to have to bring me to see the Dauphin. I have had a vision. I'm going to be the one that's going to save France. So he needs to see me. And she's sent back. And they're like, no, sorry, you, you're crazy. No, she goes back again in January 1429. Again, Robert de Baudricourt says, no, he's the commander. He's like, no, sorry, go away. But two of his his sort of soldiers or his closer sort of men at arms kind of start to support Joan and see something in her. Eventually, Baudricourt says, okay, right, you can go. She goes with six soldiers to Chinon, which is where Charles's court is, is sitting. This is where she cuts her hair and starts to wear male clothes. I think they call it the fashionable, the kind of fashionable cut of a boy. So effectively like a pudding bowl haircut. This is almost certainly a practical decision, at least in the beginning. And there are very obvious reasons for this. They also makes it easier for her to, to pass as not a girl, basically, that she's going to be seen as this kind of, mm-hmm. as this male figure with these soldiers. She won't stand out. She wears male dress till the end of her life. And at a certain point, she begins to sort of talk about the male dress as something that she's being told to wear. Her, her visions are telling her that this is, God wants her to wear these clothes. So yeah, so she gets to Chino. There's this kind of story about the Dauphin hiding from her, putting someone else on the throne. And it is kind of contested as to how this would have actually happened in reality. Would this have happened before or after? She has been interrogated and assessed and then let in to see the Dauphin. Mm -hmm. But this is taken as evidence of her kind of miraculousness. Yeah, she knows the fake king is fake, and she finds him in the crowd. Yeah, Yeah. this is the famous thing. Apparently she speaks to Charles and she tells him something that only she could know and he could know. And this is when her, her career, as we would recognize it now, begins in earnest in 1429. And then she leads a battle of Orléans. Yeah. And she wins that battle. She lifts the siege. Yeah. Then there are some other battles. And eventually she ends up having to go to Paris. Mm-hmm. And she does not succeed. Yeah, they send her to Paris. It's partially, I think, they're testing her as well, because she's saying, I have been sent to do this. There's a prophecy, or there are prophecies, plural, that a maid will deliver France. Hmm. A virgin will deliver France. There's like a folklore. Yeah. There's like a... She doesn't just come out of nowhere. There is some kind of expectation. When she emerges... People are ready to sort of believe that this is the person that they've been hearing about. I mean, this is the other thing about her. I think sometimes she's shown as this sort of slightly crazy, poor peasant girl who doesn't really know what's going on. and God is trying to speak through her and all this kind of thing. But she's very intelligent. Like it's clear from her trial testimony and it's clear from the way that she, from the things she knows and the way that she speaks back to these inquisitors, certainly in the beginning, she is very smart. So yeah, so poor Joan gets sent to Paris. At Paris, she's shot in the leg and that that kind of marks the beginning of the end. She does she does turn up at a couple of other battles, a couple of other sieges, but at this point she's less the sort of divine figure in her armor than the sort of almost a jobbing soldier at this point. She's arrested at or captured at Compiègne. The Burgundians capture her and then they sell her to the English. It's more important politically for them to be able to say number 1, she's not sent by God. Number 2, look, she was a fraud all along. Therefore, her defeat of us was done by the devil, basically, and this is why she has to be delivered into our hands. Arrested in 1430, incarcerated in Rouen, 
and goes to trial in Rouen at the beginning of 1431, the spring of 1431. So she's under arrest for nearly a year then? Yeah, you're right. It's a long incarceration before she eventually goes to trial. And the trial lasts about five months. I mean, I think in this world, people believe, you know, it's not the case that people just credulously believe anything. But they believe that their God and that the devil can act in this world, right? They can they can intervene in these ways. So they're trying to check that as well. At the end of her trial, she is brought to the churchyard of the Abbey of Saint-Ouen in Rouen. There, she effectively breaks. She thinks that they might just save her at this point. She thinks she might live. So she recants. She submits to the authority of the church. And she agrees to wear women's clothes again. And she puts the women's clothes back on. Subsequently, she is found to be wearing men's clothes again. You know, maybe she she demanded to wear these clothes again, but it seems more likely her female clothes were taken away and that this was her only option. And she says, oh yeah, by the way, my recanting was not real. That All that stuff did happen to me. I, I want to recant my recanting. So that, that eventually sends her to the stake as a heretic in May 1431 in Rouen. And that's the end for her. Her remains, as is traditional or is the rule with these kind of executions, her remains are scraped together and they are dumped in the river. And then in 1456, they have this rehabilitation or nullification process. This is a political decision because if Joan is going to stand as a heretic, that's not going to look good for Charles because she was the person who got him crowned in the first place. So therefore, they have to rehabilitate her in order to remove that kind of problematic part of his story. Basically, what they decide is that it wasn't really a a fight between Armagnacs and Burgundians. It was the fault of the English. They were just like, we were always French. Joan was always French. Drive the English out. That's what we were doing together. So that's why this trial happens, or why the the nullification happens. So when does Joan become Saint Joan of Arc? It takes a while. It takes a really long time. By most standards, Joan is not a devotional figure until much, much later. She is venerated in a, a way that is both religious and not religious in Orléans. The French Revolution comes along and there's a degree of the sort of dechristianization process that happens with that, although that is contested, as I was telling my students today. And the cult is kind of sort of quelled in Orléans. Napoleon, after the Concordat in 1802, when he's back on side with the church, says, yeah, cool, you can go back. I want Joan can be venerated again. Uh, as this kind of local heroine. She's not just like a sort of a saintly figure, she's also a local heroine. The really sort of impo- important point for Joan as a, as a figure of devotion, as well as a French national hero, is the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. And Joan is a really powerful figure for this. So, so Joan becomes this kind of devotional figure as a symbol of French unity and as a symbol of a saviour, somebody who can reunite France again. And that's really the beginning of the modern Joan. So she becomes a saint in 1920. Her beatification happens in 1909. So she is canonized not as a sort of a warrior figure for Christ. She is a virgin martyr who lived a life of heroic virtue. And I think it's it's often pointed out that this is, (laughs) I think it's the only case where somebody who the Catholic Church effectively sent to their deaths for being a heretic was subsequently made a saint by the Catholic Church. So they made her the martyr and then recognised her for being the martyr. So that's that's it. And I mean, she's one of the, I think she's probably the French national saint now. I mean, as I said, Rouen is Joan Central. There are whole areas, this whole area of Paris that where the streets are all named after things to do with Joan. She's the only person that there's like multiple statues of one person 
multiple statues of one woman in Paris. There's several Joan statues in Paris. Um, there's a basilica to her near the site where she was injured in the leg at the Paris at the siege of Paris. So there is, yeah, she she is she is big business now in terms of her sort of place within French culture, but also global Catholic culture, I think as well. Let's get into the passion of Joan of Arc. The Passion of Joan of Arc was released in 1928, is a black and white silent French film directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer and starring René Jean Falconetti as the maid herself. The film depicts Joan's trial at the hands of her captors and ultimately her execution by burning. While controversial during its production due to Dreyer's being neither a Catholic nor French and even being banned in Britain for the portrayal of some truly awful English soldiers, it was critically acclaimed upon its release and has been widely praised for its contributions to cinema. With its innovative shot composition, clean visual aesthetic and superb acting, The Passion of Joan of Arc is a stunning cinematic piece. So I'm actually going to throw to Katie here because Katie has done quite a bit of work on Passion Plays Mm. and this film closely follows a lot of those ideas so Katie how is this like a typical passion play so a typical passion play if we're going really technical focuses just on the trial and execution of Jesus so it's the stories from the gospels shorn of a lot of what we know about his early ministry his miracles his collecting of his disciples Sometimes a passion play will include his entry into Jerusalem, his disturbance in the temple, the Last Supper, and then the trial and crucifixion. But classically, it is just the trial and crucifixion. And that's what we're getting in The Passion of Joan of Arc. We get just her trial and her execution. But it's more than just that. There is a scene in the film where the bishops and the people who are the judges, they decide that they are going to go away in secret and they are going to forge a letter from the king to try and elicit a confession from her. And so we see them conspiring. And while they are conspiring, we see Joan in her cell and the bars on the cell window cast a shadow on the floor in the shape of a cross. And she's looking really intently at the cross. And then we also see her weaving a crown. Obviously, this is evoking the crown of thorns. And so she's demonstrating her piety and the scene cuts back to the priest conspiring and then back to her piety. And that's a thing that we get in medieval passion plays as well. We get the high priests conspiring against Jesus, often intercut as you can do on stage. So we think about that as a film thing, but on stage, that was a thing too. They would sometimes have separate stages set up or they would use curtains to show the action in one place and then show the action in another place. And so you would get demonstrations of Jesus's piety, either at the Last Supper or praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, intercut with scenes of the priests conspiring with Judas against him. So this cut back and forth in The Passion of Joan of Arc is straight out of a passion play. And there's a couple other things too. We see two main bishops who are conspiring against her instead of a single one. So that really that's really your Annas and Caiaphas main figures against Jesus. 
We also actually see her have the crown that she's weaving placed on her head by some of the soldiers, and then they mock her. So this is the crowning with thorns and the mocking of Christ. She also cries a lot, a lot. I mean, she's really tearful through the film. And I think this is like, we see Jesus' suffering in a passion play through torture. So we see lots of blood and cuts and things like that. And we don't see that on Joan. Instead, we see... The external manifestation of her suffering is the tears. So it's a inner torment rather than a physical suffering. And the final thing, which I just thought was kind of funny, is one of the judges, he has like tufts of hair. Like he's bald on top and he's got si- these side tufts of hair. And they're kind of twisted and they come up like like horns. And at one bit, he actually twirls one of them which draws the viewer's eye straight to it and he twists it up to maintain that horn type shape off the top of his head and it's quite a long tradition in a number of passion plays across Europe to have the high priests wear these horn shaped miters and so I thought this feels like it's a nod to that tradition going on but apart from that it's actually a really modern film It feels really contemporary almost, even though it's from 1928. The shots are really tight. We don't get a lot of scenery. It feels almost displaced from time. As you said, it's really clean visual aesthetics. There's not a lot of like overt medievalism anywhere. We don't really get an obvious period. Hmm. And when I was watching it, I thought this reminded me so much of the Gospel According to St. Matthew by Pasolini. And so I sent a quick message to Matt Page, who we had on another episode. And I said... Friend of the show. Yeah, friend of the show. And I I asked, do you know if Pasolini was inspired by the Passion of Joan of Arc? And he said, yes, he was. Mm. And it turns out that when Pasolini was going to do his, his passion play for Jesus, he sent his cameraman to watch the Passion of Joan of Arc so he could get a sense of what sort of style he wanted. And this tight style was supposed to allow the spirit in by cutting off a lot of the exterior you're leaving room for spiritual so i like that yeah fascinating movie Mm, yeah (laughs) because it's like this film drawing from that tradition and then subsequently influencing the ongoing tradition yeah just slotting right in there as like a jesus narrative in many ways have you looked into passion plays or anything like that at all laura or this is kind of new information yeah i'm familiar with the passion structure and not in the kind of an academic sense, partially just from growing up and also being aware of the rhythms, I guess, of the passion story um, as played out over Holy Week, but also the the importance of these kind of passion structures in terms of creating narratives that then can be used for other people's. You know, anyone who listens to this will be like, oh, of course, I knew she was going to mention Napoleon. But here we go again. But like, <laughs> it's very interesting when you see how his final years are read by supporters and presented as a passion as a suffering and death, mm. you know, his suffering death and implied resurrection. There's a lot of Jesus-y comparisons in there. I completely agree that Dreyer is definitely pushing at these kind of very clear European traditions while also doing something, as you say, Katie, that's just completely modern. Yeah. And I mean, I feel very strongly that that, that period, the late 1920s, is such a good time for cinematic innovation. Like I think, we, you know, the year before this, you have Abel Gonsa's Napoleon, which is five and a half hours long and it's my favorite film that says a lot about me and that's cinematically innovative in a different way but again it feels like it could have been made recently in this in terms of the speed the intimacy the the cutting the techniques 
And interestingly, the same editor works on The Passion of Joan of Arc, a woman called Marguerite Boger. I really like the fact that the same woman is making these two visions of French heroism and, and in different ways. I always think about her when I, when, I, when I see both of the films. Yeah, it's just an incredibly modern reading of, of suffering and of faith. Ultimately, I think it is a very much about testing and also about her piety, but ultimately it's something very strong about Joan in it. I think the Falconetti performance is, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it's probably one of the best performances that anyone ever did on a screen because it's, it's so intense. It's so sustained. The fact that Dreyer operates in close-ups all the time, as you said, Katie, like, there's no sense of what time this is taking place in. He had this enormous set built to replicate the Castle of Rouen and we don't see very much of it. And I think that the studio were a bit like, we spent a lot of money on this for you and uh, we don't see a lot of this castle. But for him, it was not about the detail. It was about the the fact that they disappear. And I think John Albert says this in his book about medieval history on film. He's like, the fact that the details disappear or kind of fade into the background is what makes the Dreyer film so good. Mm-hmm. That the central performances Dreyer was was a bit of a taskmaster. Mm. He refused to let any of the actors wear makeup. Most of the men with the tonsures, those are real. They cut those into their hair. They're not wigs. Mm. Falconetti was told, oh, well, you know, you'll be fine. You won't have to cut your hair. It'll be okay. And then they shave her hair for real. Mm. That clipping scene, that's her. That's That's her hair being cut away. And some people would argue there's something a bit too intense about that. But as a performance, it's it's extraordinary. The tears are real. I have to say the hair cutting scene really, really struck me. So that's right before she's sent to burn. Yeah. She already has her very short hair, but they take a pair of scissors and they cut it right, right down. Yeah. And then we actually see the hair being swept up. And I know I'm sort of reversing time periods here, but it was Holocaust imagery for me. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously Dreyer wouldn't have had that. (laughs) In 1928 in mind. But yeah, that's what that scene struck me as. Yeah. It was very powerful. For me, I went to the same time period, but not the same context, because it made me think of the shaving of women's heads in France at the end of the Second World War, where women who had or were accused of or who had been in relationships or connections with the occupying German forces had their heads shaved. And this is a common trope, Mm. women having their heads shaved as a form of punishment. I mean, it's for Joan, it's penitential. But did that happen at the end of the First World War as well? Yeah, that's a good question. Mm. I know that it was definitely happening in Ireland in the War of Independence and the Civil War. I think it's more common for head shaving to happen in terms of people being marked out as traitors. Mm. So it's a very common female punishment. There's something very, very powerful about it. It is it is a distressing thing, I think, to watch because she's she does look really genuinely distressed. And mm-hmm. like as you say, Katie, I think the fact that that for us as, as viewers who are familiar with the iconography of the Holocaust and or the iconography of l'épuration, the purging, as they call it, that takes place at the end of the Second World War in France, it has these resonances. It's such an extraordinary sequence, I think, that moment. I think the whole film is just, it's its difficult to watch at times because it's so intense and so involved. Mm. But I think it's beautiful. As a study of spirituality and the strength, I think, you know, Dreyer's point is about the fight for John's soul. That, I think, is what really, really comes through right to the end, where he has that juxtaposition as she's going to her death 
where he's showing the kind of the circus or the fair that's happening outside and the world that literally turns upside down. Mm. The world that literally goes over on its head. The frames go upside down. And it's this world where you don't really know where you are, where Joan is dislocated, where you become increasingly dislocated because you can't you can't place yourself in the buildings. You can't say, oh, yeah, she was in that room before. Oh, OK. It's really interesting from a psychological perspective as well. He's very clear about, you know, this is based on the trial documents. Here they are at the beginning of the film. There's this footage at the beginning of the film to emphasize the, the relationship to historical veracity, I suppose, as, as he would want to emphasize that. So on those transcripts, so I hadn't seen either this film or the 1948 one before watching them for this in the last week. And I decided it would be interesting to watch them in a different order from Katie. Yeah. So I watched the 48 film first and then I watched 28 and the dialogue, if you can call it dialogue in the silent film, but the text, a lot of the trial dialogue seemed to be common between them, which made me wonder, okay. is this from the trial transcripts or are they selecting things and brushing them up a little bit? Because it seemed in places she had very good answers. And maybe going back to some of this passion play things mm -hmm. where you have Jesus having really good quips or he sees through the snares people are laying for him verbally. And she does that at times. And then other times she seems to be not very keyed into the depths of what these really intense theological questions that her judges are asking. So I was really curious about how they were used and employed, particularly in this film, because there are a few choice things they present with what they do. Well, it's also because the very first slide that we get at the start of the film says that the text is all taken from the trial well, transcripts, but films often say, like, yeah. this is a true story, or this is... Historical. Yeah. Like, Cecil B. DeMille does the same with King of Kings. He's like, this is all from the Bible, but he added so much other stuff in there. So He also had a Joan movie, um, um, which is not, yes. The, but yeah, I, a lot of that stuff is directly from the trial. Joan's quips, she's she's smart. I mean, a lot of the quips are real. Mm. They are authentic. I can't remember exactly what she says. The the stuff about, you know, oh, did St. Michael have hair? She's like, um, or she sort of said, well, what, what do you mean? Of course God would give him hair. You know, and there's something about God not being on the side of the English that she kind of plays with. And a lot of that is accurate. And I, I also think that her confusion is accurate that the kind of going back and forth and not being sure like that is firstly a reflection of her shifting state of mind during the process of the trial mm -hmm. and if we look at it just from a purely human perspective if you are asked over a number of months to respond as you say to these very complicated theological questions you can forget what you said already and you can embellish and you can add i mean one of the things that she does is she gives more and more and more detail mm. about the visions she talks about St. Michael's hair and what St. Catherine looked like, what St. Catherine looked like, what St. St. Margaret looked like and how they appeared to her. Because as I said, like they are auditory experiences. At one point in the trial testimony, it talks about how she said she could hear them as a child, as a teenager, when she's about 12 or 13, through the ringing of the bells. Mm. And she could hear their voices speaking this way. So sometimes it's auditory, sometimes she talks about visions. Joan thinks that this is going to make it more concrete that by saying, this is what they looked like, this is how they appeared, I saw them, that that will convince them. But of course, and it's something like that Helen Castor has noted, is like, theologically, at the time, these angels and visions were not considered to have human form. Mm -hmm. So for them, it's like, oh, of course, she doesn't know this, but how could she? Mm -hmm. You know, how could she know? 
there there are edits of course to make sometimes make it look snappier make it quicker because you're not going to be able to show all five months of this in the space of a film but a lot of that stuff is right hmm. is accurate so that, those correlations and i did notice that myself and i rewatched these in the same order I, I did 48 again first and then 1928 and in addition to going back and reading all the biographies i was like ah she did really say oh you know you can see the, you can see how the trial transcript is used in both films so there's yeah i think there they, they, that is what she was that is what she was like mm-hmm. you know she was smart yeah i noticed that they were covering a lot of the same quotes so it's a fair representation of the whole the transcripts i presume there are reams and reams of things that were said yeah so we're getting like choice snippets yeah i mean and... they're not you know the transcript is like any kind of historical document it's really long but not every historical document is long but it's it's the best bits. It's the highlights. Right. It's the stuff that suits Jonah's hero or Jonah's heroine figure. So there's things that people would recognize as known from the from the trial transcripts. I think Dreyer works from, I can't remember, is it Pierre Champion? There's a published version of the trial transcripts. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is what Dreyer works from. So it's known, people would know what the text was, especially in the aftermath, given that it's only eight years since Joan has become a saint. Mm. So this is the point where people are increasingly familiar with the details of the story, as opposed to just Joan and knowing that she did something, you know, to the saviour of France or what happened. The film is just mesmerising in many ways, really with the performances and everything from shot composition, if you're into that kind of cinema language. But it, yeah, cannot recommend it enough just as a experience and i found joan in the film is presented it's really like an arc about will she remain true to herself Mm. seems to be a really big theme and then it is and then we have quite an apocalyptic ending in some ways but joan herself the final text is like her soul is born up to heaven protected by fire it's really joan remaining true to who she is and the tone felt very different from I'm going to have to refer to it as the Bergman film, I think, because it really is the Bergman show in many ways. And that film, I found a different arc. So maybe we should, we'll introduce that film and I'll hand over to Katie. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, let's do our film summary for our 1948's Joan of Arc. So this one was directed by Victor Fleming and starring Ingrid Bergman. And this film is really different from the 1928 one. First of all, it's in color. It has sound and it's American. It's also much more of a classic period piece. So we see Joan's full arc, pun intended. Rather than focusing just on the trial, this film is really a full life of Joan. So we trace her story from her decision to heed God's calling to lead France's armies against the English, to her major victory in the Battle of Orléans, to her participation at the coronation of King Charles VII, her eventual capture and ransom to the English, her lengthy trial, and ultimately through to her execution. And there's way less in the way of the passion play elements that we see in the 1928 film, but it doesn't dispense with them entirely. And Joan still follows many of the tropes of a Jesus narrative. So we see her conflicts with authority figures, the conspiracies around her, a betrayal for gold coins, a torment and an unjust trial. 
Joan of Arc was nominated for seven Academy Awards, and it ended up winning two and receiving an honorary third. The costume design is spectacular. It's a real period piece, unlike the costume design in the 1928 one, which I think just like the visual sets and stuff strips down and it's not really put into a particular time period. And here it very, very much is. And the Battle of Orléans is dramatic and it's really skillfully done and there's a lot of visual splendor. But I was doing a little bit of poking around and I found a New York Times review of the film from 1948. And it also noted these things pictorially phenomenal, but it concluded with this line and I kind of agree with it. The mystery, the meaning and magnificence of the poor girl called Joan have just been missed. Yeah, what did you guys think of this one? I think we all agreed we really like 1928. I mean, I'm I'm biased because I'm like quite into that time period for cinema as well. And I'm just like, yeah, cool. You know, but I, yeah, I saw this, I think, could have been a few months ago on BBC as well. Like it was on a Saturday mm. afternoon back then. It was, yeah. And I was like, oh, Joan of Arc movie. <laughs> Why not? And yeah, I think I think it's very much, as you say, Kate, it's very much in that kind of traditional biopic mold. It is the classic Golden Age of Hollywood biopic. It's got the hero's story from beginning to end. There is no doubt about the fact that this is a person who is religiously motivated and that incredible sequence of the, the lifting of the Siege of Orleans. Joan is standing there leading them forward with her banner that says Jesus Maria, talking about God and being delivered and saving France and so on. And she's crying out for her visions at the end. There's something really sad about the sort of last few scenes before she goes to the stake where she's begging them to to speak to her again. And and eventually the implication is that they do. But yeah, I think especially the trial sequence, because even though I think they do a really good job with Joan on her own, where you've got this this Bergman on this, this sort of little stool in the middle of this courtroom surrounded by all these guys and, as you say, various levels of incredible mm. costuming. Mm. I capture some of her isolation, I think, really well. But that bit in particular kind of feels a bit like, oh, and you're going, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Whereas I think the sheer intensity of the Dreyer film means that the trial doesn't sort of lag, even though it's covering some of the same ground, as we said, but there's something really more immersive about the Dreyer film, I think because of the fact that it's sort of laying Joan almost completely bare as well. There's something really beautiful about that. I mean, I think it's it's also interesting because Bergman is Bergman. Apparently she's the closest sounding because she has that very accented English and Joan would have spoken with a sort of Germanic accent. So that's probably broadly right but she's also very 1940s hollywood looking mm-hmm. i like when they cut her hair and she appears and i'm like that's just a 1940s short haircut <laughs> you know like joan's hair is if any of you have seen the the what's he called luke besson's the messenger which basically portrays joan as crazy so and you've got mila Jojovich with that very short haircut with the kind of big fringe that's closer to real joan whereas even when Joan is going to her the stake, they go, when they go into the room for like so that Joan can have communion for the last time, and she's sitting there in her shift waiting, and her hair is just kind of slicked back, and I was like, what, what happened to the whole penitential stuff? Like we 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 know she went with her head shaved. You couldn't shave Ingrid Bergman's head. That's the issue. She, you could not do that. No, you couldn't. <laughs> could they not have put her in a bald cap? I mean, yeah. I, uh, so there's there there are certain things. It's very kind of classic Hollywood. I think Jose Ferrer is very good as, as this kind of slightly slimy Charles. I think he captures some of Charles's double dealing. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I really, I don't like Charles no. at all. And I don't know what Joan sees in him. <laughs> but that performance is really enjoyable. 
I think he's great in that yeah. film. I think that might, it might be his first film. Really? I have a feeling it's his first film. Because Victor Fleming had made like these massive blockbusters. This is the guy who made Gone with the Wind, right? Mm-hmm. And The Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. And then this is like his historical epic. And it doesn't, it, it just doesn't quite take off. But there are those really good performances as well. And The Bishop. Oh, the bishop. I lo- you just love to hate him, and he's so good at that. He's so slimy. Yeah. Although there is something really interesting about fatness and the evil oh, in these yeah. films. I, yeah. think, I think that's, for yeah. me, there's something really interesting about these sort of very well-padded bishops, almost circular mm-hmm. in their purple robes. It is problematic, obviously. You kind of feel there's a degree of like... Mm. You're going to see this in Annas and Caiaphas' representation also. Okay. It's in plenty of paintings... And I've been thinking more about elderliness, mm. but it's also heft. Mm. It's both things together. And especially once you include the artistic tradition, we see plenty of images of, you know, a waif like Jesus in front of quite hefty Caiaphas. Yeah, mm. yeah I think it's, they're, they're really, they're just not very pleasant characters. Although, of course, there is a sort of implication of wealth and status attached to the fact that, that they are so hefty. You know, that they, they eat well, they live well. The bishops do perfectly well in 15th century France. But yeah, I mean, I was I, I was kind of wondering about the, from both of your perspectives, about the, the dynamics between Joan as the chosen one. Because obviously one of the things about the chosen one is that they have their helpers, their people that come with them, the people that recognise them as chosen, oh. and the men that she is with. Hmm. There's a lot of kind of buddy movie type bits. And then that sometimes veers slightly into romance. So I just, I was wondering what both of you thought about that way of looking at the chosen one in terms of kind of how... She relates to the men that are with her, the soldiers, the people who support mm. her, especially the Duke of Alençon, who's kind of like her number one guy. Yeah, so both of us were talking about this after we saw the movies, and we thought, are they the best for this season? <laughs> In a lot of the other movies that we've done this season, those those chosen one tropes, having somebody who's a guiding figure and then mm. having your your helper people that if you don't have that helper person you don't succeed at whatever your mission is they're really obvious not in every film we've picked but i think the 1948 film for joan gives us more of those chosen one things i mean we have none of that in the 28 film cuz it's just straight passion play and jesus as a savior figure doesn't have helpers but here we have the men that are really at her side in the Battle of Orléans and that, I mean, in the way that the film shows it, she wouldn't have succeeded without them. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, I feel like we tend to think of her as like she led everyone into battle and like that's the sort of popular idea, right? Is that like Joan knew how to be a great military commander? <laughs> it's like, which just feels kind of silly. And this movie shows like, no, 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 she had guidance from people who knew what they were doing and they clearly get really close Mm. at one point she's recalled to the court of charles and she has to stay there and she has this farewell scene with these men and they're all really sad to depart from each other so you get a sense that there's this camaraderie and it's only once she doesn't have them that she's captured Mm. and all the bad things happen Mm. i agree with all this and i think like the elements are really interesting there and they really do support her. And there's that slightly odd scene cut where she goes off once more into battle and it's a little bit vague what she's doing. And then suddenly she is arrested. And I thought, is she turning herself over to try and achieve like her ends? And that was a real, I had to go back and like, there's something missing. 
But on the other hand, I think that this film, and for me, this is also why the trial scene in this film is a lot less impactful, mm. because it almost is a surprise that Joan is going to be executed for me. Because throughout the film, she doesn't, maybe in the first 10 minutes, she has a bit of self-doubt, which for me is like a really crucial element of being a chosen one, like you, why me? There's not really any of that throughout the rest of the film. And it's always her success. She's very assured that she's going to win. And then really it's at the end, you're thinking right to the last minute, something could happen and it doesn't. But she doesn't have that moment of what am I doing? It's a very dramatic scene when she abjures, mm. but it doesn't have the same this is Joan's inner turmoil. She's she's visibly exhausted at this point from the trial and the proceedings, but I don't get the sense that she's really changed that much or her self-identity is threatened, which I do find in the 28th film. So that, that's why I think there's something to be argued the other way. Mm. But then it also doesn't fit because she is so alone. There's even that going back to the young and the old in both films, they have this younger monk, priest, whatever he is, comes and consoles her. But she also ignores the advice of a lot of them, you know, for narrative reasons. That's the right choice to ignore them. And it's very complicated. So I, it's got all those elements, but it does such interesting things with them. And I think this might be because it's also tied to, and this has been revealed to me in talking to you, they're actually sticking quite closely in many ways to historical Joan. So I wonder if that is why some of these more Lord of the Rings-esque Chosen One elements are more absent. At the same time, though, I feel like no historical figure actually acts in isolation. It's because Joan is a savior figure in popular memory. Mm. I mean, she's a saint, right? So that is often a figure in isolation. But if we thought about her more... As a chosen one, we might be a little bit truer to her historical reality because we would have to insert other people mm. into her narrative, people who I would imagine did help her in real life along the way. I mean, she had to have somebody who believed her. Right. Mm. That's the thing. Like, I mean, if she can't walk on water, she can't cure the sick, she can't act in this Christ-like way. Do you know what I mean? So I think they, mm -hmm. she... She has to have people who will believe her, mm. whether that's her uncle, who I think it's not clear whether he believed her or whether he just was like, please stop harassing me. I will bring you to Vaucouleur. <laughs> where she needs those the soldiers at, at Vaucouleur to speak on her behalf to, to Robert de Baudricourt. She needs Charles to believe her. And there is a question about whether they believe her because she's useful or because they believe this is the maid that we were prophesized that would come. And I think possibly a bit of both. And I think she needs the people to believe her. Mm. And you do see this in the in the 1948 film, the kind of acclamation of Joan as she's sort of coming through and they're saying, the maid, the maid, you know, she's coming. And also how those people turn. I do think there's a little bit of self-doubt. There's a scene where it's before she's captured and she's in, because I'm thinking about the clothes again, because when she goes back to the court mm. and Charles is there playing croquet and he, he just, oh, it just seems so boring at that court. Yeah. And she, she's got this beautiful green thing on, this beautiful green mm. jacket. And apparently historical Joan did like her style um, when she was having clothes made for her. Like she was, apparently she wore something really beautiful to Charles' coronation, like this kind of golden thing, probably right to show her in these kind of very nice outfits. She's got the green thing. And then at one point she's wearing a black kind of doublet with a white shirt underneath it. And she's kneeling in an altar. She's sort of having this, this inner monologue of, of why aren't they speaking to me? Where are they gone? Mm. And I, I think for me, that is a moment of self-doubt. There is this kind of moment of why aren't they coming? Where are they? Why aren't they speaking? 
talking to me now. She's not, she hasn't been arrested at this point, but the absence of the voices, the absence of the visions. I do think it's interesting that like for all its sort of historical, biopic, tropey traditionalism, it doesn't attempt to show us the visions. Mm. Like I think there's, I don't know if either of you have seen Hail Caesar, which I think is a great. Yeah. Yeah. And there's that. Oh, I love that. There's a bit, isn't there a bit where they, <laughs> they're watching rushes of the film and they're like, insert sort of divine apparition here. They have like, we'll put yeah. that back in at the end. <laughs> and they don't try to do that for Joan, which is, which I think is good, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think if you people floating around being like, I'm St. Margaret or I'm St. Michael, it will be problematic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Bergman is, is good in it. I think she's obviously a little bit too old. Yeah, actually, both actresses were in their mid 30s. Mm. I was really struck by that, that they were right around the same age when they're both playing a 19 year old. And I wonder if that does something to the way we're receiving them because they both come across as mature Mm -hmm. not just like visually or whatever but just you know in their acting in their character and I wonder whether a 19 year old actress would convey something different in a way that would be important to have and we don't have that in either film yeah I think it would be nice to see a very childlike Joan the very name that she gives herself La Pucelle is someone who is at that border between childhood and adulthood and she is an adult obviously when she dies but she's not presenting herself in that way Mm. I would like to see a sort of a very I suppose the word would be gamine they try that Otto Preminger tries that with Jean Seberg in St. Joan so that's an adaptation of the Shaw play but the problem with the players was that Shaw doesn't really seem to like her very much I think and the Preminger film suffers from that as well but I think you're dealing with Hollywood beauties, really. I, I'd like to see a Joan that doesn't look like the, the luminous vision. I think one of the reviews of the 1948 film talks about how luminous Bergman was. And she is. I mean, she's... Yeah, I think you're asking too much, though, Laura. I know. I know. I want I want to see... I want to see a sort of slightly rough-looking Joan, basically. That's just... Wait. <laughs> That's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, I think it's... I, I also think of the fact Bergman... Isn't that that story that it's at this time that the story about her affair with Roberto Rossellini comes out and that mm-hmm. really damages the way people see her and also then foresee, therefore see the film mm. because you can't square the virgin maid yeah. with woman who has gone off and had affair and left. It was also because she had played a nun oh. in like her previous role and so she was already this saintly figure and then this scandal breaks And yeah, I think it impacted ticket sales to this movie because people were just so angry at how dare she have an affair. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like she was obsessed with being Joan of Arc as well. And she had been, you know, apparently they had like a massive statue of her, like a plastic figurine of her erected in New York for the the premiere of her in costume, like a 75 foot high Ingrid Bergman Joan. The film is based on a play, but it's very different from the play, right? So it's like the play is a play within a play. And she had originated the role of the person that plays Joan in the play within a play in Joan of Lorraine in 1946. So she is lobbying hard to be Joan. And I think she then, she does Joan again for Roberto Rossellini, who becomes her husband then. So she does it again. Mm. And it's it's interesting. I'm I'm really fascinated by when actors have a relationship with a historical figure that they're like, I want to be that person. I want to try to be that person and do it more than once as well, I think is, is, is really interesting. But yeah, I think I think she's she is clearly just so luminous and beautiful that it's difficult to look at her as the suffering 
troubled person that Joan was by the end, right? And I think that's what Maria Falconetti, even though she is the same age, hmm. does manage to get to a point of vulnerability yeah. that I think Bergman doesn't quite necessarily reach on some level. I also like the fact that they have commonalities in terms of the sort of when she's being killed or when she's dying and you have the people in the crowd going, you know, you're killing a saint, you're killing a saint. And all I could think of, I think, in the 1948 film was when you have that English soldier who looks up and is like, oh God, we've, you know, oh no, we've, we've killed a saint or something. He has all these lines. It's like, all I could think was John Wayne, right? And the truly this man was the son of God. And I was like, <laughs> yes, I literally said the exact same thing to my husband when I watched the movie. I was like, <laughs> truly. He is the son of God. God. Yeah. I mean, but again, that's like Hail Caesar. Like like George Clooney, like, oh, it's so good. Yeah, so I just need to explain for the listeners. So at the end of the 1948 film, when Joan is burning at the stake, the executioner, he goes to, there's a priest who's delivering like this final soliloquy. It reminded me a lot of the final soliloquy at the end of Romeo and Juliet. Like everyone here has done wrong and everything is bad. And the executioner throws himself at this priest who's delivering the soliloquy and says, I've killed a saint. And it reminded me so much of John Wayne, who plays the centurion, He's a Roman soldier who participates in Jesus's execution in the greatest story ever told. And John Wayne had this single line to deliver. <laughs> Truly, he is the son of God. Yeah. So that's what all that laughter is about. <laughs> just, I, just, I just love that that is well, that's what you all thought that you thought back to, because I was like, I, as someone who saw a lot of sword and sandal type Saturday matinees as a child, a lot of the robe, a lot of great story ever told, mm-hmm. Irish TV and Easter week, which is like, you know, what, what what religious epic from the 1950s can we slap mm-hmm. on so that people can, you know, three errors. <laughs> oh, in the US, it was the Ten Commandments oh, every I year. Mean, and then occasionally they'd wheel out Spartacus and you'd be like, is this? but however but i think it you know there is that kind of the trope of the recognition though Mm. that i think also falls into the sort of the prophet not being recognized in their own time Mm. and then subsequently being recognized Mm -hmm. that momentary recognition though right when she's dying it's right in with putting her in the the model of jesus i should just add like this has been done to so many other saints saints Mm -hmm. plays were a big deal in the medieval period so joan is not the only one who's gotten this treatment and you already mentioned napoleon getting the same treatment yeah yeah it's constant yeah Mm. now joan is so important in the sort of mental world of france i think but also again i think she transcends frenchness Mm. i was thinking when i was praying for this about zendaya turning up at the met gala when they had that I don't know, the, the sort of the look of the Catholic Church. I think it was called Heavenly Bodies or something was the theme. And she turned up as Joan of Arc mm. in this incredible thing that was armor and chainmail. Her hair or a wig or something that was made her look like a 1930s Joan with the sort of the fringe and the, the short choppy bob. And I just love the fact that like this very young actress is very much of her, you know, 21st century moment, I think was taking that image and wearing it and wearing the Joan image. And then everyone would go, oh yes, Joan of Arc. You know, that they would still be able to go, that's who that is. There's just something really powerful about the fact that she still, she has that appeal. Yes, we killed a saint, but also that in a way made her, made her her name, I think, that that end for her. Neither film really addresses the sort of church reality of 15th century France. Mm -hmm. So what we get are believers 
who are pious and they follow Joan, believe in Joan, or at least are one a bit to her side or her cause. And then everybody else demonstrates zero piety at all. And they are just evil, hypocritical, conspiratorial bad guys. And that, again, that plays in the Jesus passion trope. But what we actually have for the historical Joan is an internal debate. We have believers on both sides. So do you think that we could get a good film of Joan that also shows us that church reality of the 15th century? Like everybody then is Catholic. Everyone. The English felt that they had God on their side. Burgundians teaming up with the English were like, yes, God is on our side. So God can't be with this woman, Joan, because she's not on our side. So both sides are kind of coming at it from a a genuine faith perspective. Yeah. So there's Jeannette and then there's Jeanne, which is 2019. And I haven't seen Jeanne, but I'm curious to know whether, because that's a modern version of the story. Hmm. So I would like to know to what extent that deals with that question of everybody being a believer. And I I think we could do a Joan movie that addresses this question. But I think it would be a very different Joan movie to what we're used to. And I kind of don't think it would necessarily be all about her. I think she would become this sort of foil for basically a case study in when people who believe the same thing notionally disagree about one aspect of this you know? Yeah. So yeah, I think I think it will be possible. I think it'll be really interesting, actually, to see to see that played out. And you're absolutely right. They just disagree with whether she is what she says she is. But but we have to we have to reframe them. For her to be a saint now, we have to reframe everyone else as the bad guys. That's the way these these interpretations work. Yeah, I guess it's because I found this with them, that they're asking questions. And even though it was portrayed like they're gotcha questions, Mm. it did feel like these are serious questions and they're trying to verify something that they sincerely care about and they're not just asking things that are necessarily traps but they are well here is a core part of our worldview about how everything works and if what you're saying is true then it somehow needs to slot into what we we've worked out the cosmic structure is so there's like a lot at stake for them with this mm. And it does feel, uh, maybe they were a little bit sympathetic. Some of the jury, they have enough of it and walk out and all these other kind of things. But mm. Yeah, that's more pronounced in the 48th and the Ingrid Bergman film. Yeah. I mean, they are they are inquisitors. And I know that like the cliched image of the Inquisition is that they're religious fanatics. And some of them obviously were. But I, I completely agree with you, Joe. I think mm-hmm. some of them definitely would have taken this as a proper Inquisition rather than a political show trial as it's sometimes interpreted and as it is often presented in posthumous tellings of Joan's story. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right, yeah, because of course they had very specific questions that they had to ask. It would be interesting to tell Joan's story from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you'd get away <laughs> with saying, what if we look at it from the perspective of these men who sent this 19-year-old to her death by flames? <laughs> They're not that sympathetic, are they? Um, I don't know how many people... (laughs) They're not that sympathetic. But what if you're like... I worry that people would would accuse you of the the good German cliche Mm. that you sometimes get in Holocaust fictionalised narratives and so on. Mm -hmm. But like I said, I think it would be really hard to tell her story 
I think we could do it, but I think it would be really hard to do it in a way that people would engage with because it, it's offering something that's too new. Mm-hmm. I think in telling these stories, they have to have something that people can can hang their sort of knowledge of the Jones story on, as well as, as doing something a little bit different, like singing in the case of the Dumont childhood movie. But yeah, I need to see Jean and see whether he is more sympathetic or whether it's just the same mm-hmm. thing, but with songs. I know that the actress in Jean is much younger than the actresses that have done Joan in the past. She's a child, basically. And again, I would like to see the way that that, that that plays out. Laura, it's been so great having you with us today. But before we let you go, we'd love for you to pitch us a pairing. This can be anything, anything at all that you would pair with either or both of the Joan of Arc films we've discussed today. So maybe a drink, a food, another movie, a book, an article, a piece of music. Et tu est possible. So I have one pairing. and I, I think for the 1948 film, I would put a nice bottle of Chino because she's at the court quite mm-hmm. a bit. And I would also put Kate Bush's song Joni off Ariel because that's about Joan of Arc. And there's a bit at the end where like, there's a, I don't know if it's Kate Bush herself or someone else, names the saints in French. Mm. And it's the three saints that Joan mentions. And I quite like that. It fits with the kind of heroic battle Joan of that film. And this is really unfair to the 1928 film, which is just, oh, it's so good and so special. But I've just realised that in Rouen, you can buy a chocolate that is called, this is so inappropriate, Rouen. It's called Les Larmes de Jean d'Arc. The Tears of Joan of Arc. Wow. And they're basically like little chocolate <laughs> things that come in a little blue and white box. That's really dark. Oh, you've no idea. I mean, when I was in Rouen in 2017, I was there for a conference. I had a nice Joan day the day before I went back to Paris. And I was at the square where they burned her at the boucher. I was looking at the church. I was finding it very emotional and thinking it was really beautiful. And, and then there was this shop that overlooks the square and it sells Les Larmes de Jean d'Arc, The Tears of Joan of Arc. The box is blue and white, and the brand is Les Larmes de Jeanne d'Arc, dites la pucelle. The Tears of Joan of Arc, also known as the pucelle. And on the box is a picture of Joan on the stake before the burning happened. And the chocolates are like, they're like truffles. So I think given how much crying poor René Jean Jeanne Falconetti slash Maria Falconetti does in that film, I think you'd have to get a box of Les Larmes de Jeanne d'Arc and think about the sheer inappropriateness of that confection wow. <laughs> while you watched poor Falconetti suffer. Yeah, that's my... <laughs> I love this so much. <laughs> we will definitely put these pictures in a link on our website. Uh, listeners can go there and see the tears of the maid. Poor, poor Joan, yeah. <laughs> Laura, this was so great. Such a rich discussion. I don't know how we're going to manage to edit it. Thank you. I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I've, I've really enjoyed throwing myself into Joan's world and thinking about her in different ways. And yeah, it's just been really interesting because she's someone that you know, but you don't, we don't know really as well. So yeah, it's been, it's been really, really interesting. That's our show today. Gods and Movie Makers is researched and produced by us, Joe Scales and Katie Turner, and supported by listeners like you. Our music is by Style the Kid. As always, you can follow us at GodMovPod on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, head on over to our website, GodsAndMovieMakers.com, where you can donate to us or subscribe for additional content. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.